Hello. Um, hey. My name is Cy Huffer, and I'm one of the member ministers here at College Heights, and I'm glad to be back home. Uh, it's good to be here at church with you all here today. Um, man, I have missed you all seeing your faces and being here in this place with you and worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus together. Um, the last several weeks have been really great for me and my family. We had a lot of quality time together as we were able to have some rest and, and some time of rejuvenation and then just quality time. And I was laughing. It was like, I got to mitigate my expectations, you know, going on vacation. Um, because I, I like what I'm learning is, is going out of town with kids is a trip. Going out of town without kids is vacation, right? Right. <laughs> You're just parenting in a different location is what I learned, you know. And so it was great, though. We had so much fun. We had a blast. Um, I was able to get away and study and spend some time in the Word and in prayer and really feel like, Lord, where are you leading us in the next 18 months? Um, just as we want to study Scripture together. And I feel like he really led out on that and gave me some clarity on that. So I want to thank the elders of our church for giving us that opportunity to go do that uh, each year. That's just such a blessing to us. And we just love being at a church where the leadership wants to invest in long-term health of our ministerial staff. So thank you all so very much for doing that. And man, what an incredible teaching team. I mean, my goodness, you guys had it good while I was gone. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Having Mark preach and Aaron and Quaddy, I need to leave town more often because you guys have it really good when I'm gone. Um, but man, they just did a great, great job. It was really cool hearing all of their voices look at the book of 1 John, all these different lenses, and I really loved that as I was away. Um, real quick, before we jump into the text today, just one quick announcement. Um, we are going to be having Vision Sunday this fall. Now, Vision Sunday typically has been the last Sunday before Labor Day, the Sunday, last Sunday in August. Well, we're going to do it a little bit differently this year. We're going to do it the first Sunday after Labor Day. It's going to be September 8th, and we're going to be here one service, 1030 a.m. We're going to have everybody here and under one roof as we kind of look and celebrate and think and pray about what God wants to do with our church over the next year. And so come be there. Make that a priority. We'd love to have you engage and come and celebrate this kind of fall kickoff of our programming. Um, we're doing one kind of cool new thing about Vision Sunday I'm really excited about is we're going to have what we call a vision rally. And it's going to be the Wednesday night before that Sunday, Wednesday night, September 4th. It's going to be in this room at 630 for all of our um, key leaders, volunteers, small group leaders, small group members, members of our church, and anyone who like, maybe you not quite a member yet, or you're not, you're attending, but you're just kind of been checking things out and you want to get more engaged and more involved, be more intentional with our helping us accomplish our mission and our vision. Maybe we want you to come. We want you to come and kind of see what it's like and where we're headed and what we're doing. You get kind of a sneak preview of what Vision Sunday is going to be about. It's not the same service, but it's just kind of like, here's a sneak preview and then here's your role in making our vision happen over the next year. So we want you to come, put that in your calendar, Wednesday night, September 4th. We are looking forward to having you um, there as well. So we're in this um, series through 1 John called What is Love? And um, I'm, I'm still getting used to, it's hard for me every time I come up here on stage, like I have, a, I have a really hard role. Do you know that? Because when I come up here, the bumper video is always way cooler than I'll ever be. I like the music and like the, it, it, I feel like you should be getting something way better. So um, that was free. It's not in the notes, but anyway. So we're in a series called What is Love? And I love how we've approached this word that our culture is obsessed about, love. Um, but honestly, we really don't know what it means, even though we throw it around all the time. Because it's, you can love your wife and tacos. It's like there's, you know, something a little different about those two. And so Mark showed us 
he showed us in the text like what this is what love is and this is what love isn't and then aaron talked us about what love is and it has to do with our identity us our being and our doing as christians and then josh quaddy our college minister last week talked to us about the heart of love is this idea of sacrifice of of not coming to the table empty-handed and today my main focus is really as i looked into the text is trying to answer this kind of one big question that i saw come up pretty clearly and it's this how do we know that we are on the path of love how do we know that we're on the right path of love so take a look at how this portion of our text begins first john chapter 4 starting in verse 1 it says this beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from god for many false prophets have gone out into the world so right off the bat we see this kind of division this kind of why in the road these two paths that begin to kind of verge away from each other one is there's these bad spirits and if there's bad spirits that means there's probably good spirits and then these bad spirits they lead you down some kind of bad path and then there's these good spirits that they probably lead you down some a good path now for some of you this is a massive presupposition that the text assumes that maybe you don't that's the existence of spirits see in our day and age there's been an attack on what we call the excluded middle that space that theoretically exists beyond what we see and know with our five senses what we call the spiritual realm you may or may not believe in the spiritual realm the existence beyond this world here and now the of another world a world of angels and demons a world of of, of a good deity and a bad enemy a bad power a, a god and satan or a world with heaven and a world with hell and in this sermon I don't have like the adequate amount of time or ability to do both looking at what John is wanting to say about love in the passage in the time that we have and to help to kind of understand the philosophical kind of arguments for um, why there's spirits that exist or not in the theological defense of the spiritual realm. So I'm not able to do really both of those, even though I'd love to jump down kind of like this tangent and really go on a lot of these different kind of cool ideas and talk about it. But I'm not here to prove the existence of the spiritual realm today. And here's why. Look at verse 6. This is what I think, even though John says, test the spirits, the reason why is because his audience assumes that they're spirits. Actually, you want to know, the majority of world history, humans have believed in spirits. And the majority of the world today believes in the spiritual realm. So if you don't, you're in a minority, even though that's not necessarily saying that everybody's wrong, uh, that you're wrong and everybody else is right. But because of that, John is writing to a group that assumes that there are spirits. And so they, they do want to know, are we following the right spirit or not? And this is what John wants to do with that belief about spirits. Look at verse six. It says this, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. John's point, one who believes in the spiritual realm, is that these spirits can be spirits that guide us into truth or into error. Two paths, one choice. How do we know that we made the right choice? That we're following the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. How do we know that we're on the right path of love? Maybe you don't believe in, in, in the spiritual realm, but I, I can guarantee you that you can, you, you can at least acknowledge uh, a belief in the spirit of the age, for instance. We all recognize that there's like a common culture 
a popular movement, a spirit of the age that we all get touched or tempted or impressed by, right? It's why everyone is doing keto now. Right? Everybody's in the, that's a new fad diet, it's keto. I don't know about you, but I'm always like, I'm always the last to find out about the new spirit of the age, the new popular thing and the new hot topic. My wife is like, Cy, you just need to be on just, just Facebook just a little bit more. You should just be a little bit more than know about what's going on around you. Um, but it's because I'm rarely on Facebook. My social media skills are subpar at best. But we do this, don't we? We're like, oh, keto. Yeah, I heard that one celebrity talk about that that one time. And, oh, my friend's doing that. I read a Facebook article. And next thing you know, everybody's doing keto. And every restaurant has keto-friendly options. And you're like, man, that's kind of just a new thing. This is just kind of where culture and, and, and uh, the spirit of the age is moving. It's why I spent years wearing these. Right? Crocs. They are awful. It's like, it, it's like, it, it's confession for me to say that because I loved these so much. My dad reminded me, he was here in first service. I used to wear them in the winter and I would hide them in my car, wear shoes out to the car and then put them on and go into school with my Crocs on. Okay. Cause I thought they were so cool. I don't know why they were bad for me. I cannot tell you the number of times I fell down the stairs when I wearing Crocs. One time, it was the outdoor stairs, whole stack of books in my hand going back to college. Took the first step, it had been raining that day. Straight up, books everywhere, slid all the way down because of Crocs. But, oh no. I mean, but they're incredible. Look at them. They're just the coolest things ever. They're so comfortable. They're so comfortable. And they have the, they're like aerated. Look at the holes. And you can like put jewels in them and decorate them, right? They're biodegradable, I heard. I'm not sure that's true. And I also heard they're edible, in case you get lost. And they have this really nifty strap. I mean, look at that thing. Like up here, they're like house slippers. Down here, they're like Air Jordans. Okay. It's, it's the opposite of a mullet, okay? It's like, it's, it's business in the back, party in the front, right? These are the coolest. I wore these for years. You want to know why I wore these? One name. Lane Moss. Okay, now you may know Lane Moss. Lane Moss attends our church. He's a member. He works at CIY. I grew up with him. He was five years older than me. Uh, he was my idol. I had his haircut. I could mimic his walk. I can do everything. I, think, I love Lane. He's always the coolest guy. He, he is the coolest guy ever. But when I was uh, a senior in high school, he was interning at our church in our youth ministry, and he was wearing these. I'd never seen them before. And I was like, what are those? And he was like, dude, dude, these these things are just like the best things ever. And he like just started talking about the strap and the holes and the biodegradable thing, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, I'm doing Crocs. Because one person likes them that I think is cool. And I got caught up along with a million other morons in America, got caught up wearing Crocs for years, right? And I heard they're making their comeback. Okay, so if you have some that you haven't got in a while, hold on to them. Monica, actually, we were doing a white elephant gift party with friends and um, someone opened the gift that she brought and they were my Crocs. She was trying to get rid of them. I was like, I almost started to cry. I was like, no, those, I need those. Don't take those away. But this is what we do. We get caught up in the spirit of the age, even though we know it's bad for us, right? And maybe we don't know. But we look back later, you're like, what was I wearing in high school? We do this, don't we? It happens to us all the time. It's this thing from things as silly as Crocs to as serious as uh, colonialism. 
You know, it was the spirit of the age at that time. The empires of the day would go and they would conquer these other lands and they'd make them colonies. And they would say, we're bringing the enlightenment, the Western world, modernity, to all of the uncivilized third world countries around the world. We're making their lives better. And everyone did it for centuries. It was the spirit of the age. It was just common logic at the time. And yet looking back, man, it was, we, we, most people recognize like that was not the best thing, how we went about doing that. We get caught up in these spirits that lead us down paths of error and of falsehood and of destruction, subprime mortgages, the spirit of the age that led to a great recession, easy money, the spirit of the age that led to the great depression and slavery, the spirit of the age that led to the great degradation. We get caught up in these spirits of the age that seem obvious, right? They seem true. Yet the result of them are death and sin and hell and destruction. So how do we know if we're on the path of love? How do we know that we're not just copying another spirit of the age, another popular movement, like we're going to be wearing Crocs and go, what did we think we were doing? Or maybe even something a lot more serious. And we look back and we go, oh my goodness, the harm that we caused. How do we know that we're on the path of love? Not just getting caught up in the next thing with everybody else. See, there aren't just two paths in the text, but there's also two guides. Take a look at 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. This kind of sets the stage for who these two guides are, okay? It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, you ready for this? Here's the title of my sermon today, God is love. Okay, God is love. As we're gauging this book, I like how we've looked at it, where we've said, this is love, this isn't love. We are love, sacrifices. Now we see that God is love. A equals B. God is love. And because God is love, we ought to, if we know him, if we claim to follow him, if we say that we're his people, we ought to love because he's love. We ought to love people the way he loved people. And, and if we know him, we should know what it means to live on the path of love. You want to get on the right path in your life to follow the spirit of truth instead of the spirit of falsehood, to not get caught up in the spirit of the age? Then follow God, the God who is love. But how do we do that? What does that look like? And that's why in the text we get two guides here. Here's the first one in 1 John 4 verse 9. In this, in this area, in, in this thing, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed to us. It was, the, the veil was pulled back and we saw clearly, this is the love of God. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, this is the first guy that God gives us uh, on the path to find the path of the life of love. And it's his son, Jesus. It's that God made himself known, manifest to us by sending Jesus into the world that we might live through him. So what does that look like, him sending Jesus? It's seen in verse 10 here. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, ready for this, the propitiation for our sins. God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big Bible word that many of us here today probably don't use on a regular basis. And when you get home, you don't say to your spouse, typically, I had a good propitiation today. Or like, my propitiation worked yet again. Or have you seen my propitiation? Like, we don't use it regularly. It's a weird word. 
Yet it has this some real beautiful depth and rich meaning to it. And I, I really liked what Mark did when he, when he because this his word propitiation, it comes from the Greek word halosmos, and it can also be translated a Tony sacrifice in the Bible that you might be reading. Um, that's another way to, to describe it. Um, but I like what he said a few weeks ago is that he's been, I mean, you recognize he's Dr. Mark Scott has taught New Testament for decades. And he says, I don't really think I can fully understand and explain to you how Jesus' death on the cross gets your sins away, clears your sins away, frees you from your sins. There's so many different theories that they call the atonement theories. There's so many of them. It's just, it's a mystery. I remember one time at camp, this kid just asking me again and again, how did his death do anything with my sins today? And I'm like, stop asking that question. I don't know. (laughs) It's a a mystery, but... and, and with mysteries that you can't understand, we use metaphors. It's kind of like this, even though it's not totally like that. That's kind of how it works. God is kind of like Father, even though he's probably not how you understand Father. That's how we have to talk about God, because he's a mystery. We can't understand that. And so when you talk about how does Jesus' sin really atone for I mean, not his sin. How does Jesus' death on the cross atone for your sin? Well, it's, it's kind of like propitiation, okay? It, the context of that word is the temple, in the temple, there would be an altar. And what happened in the Old Testament is when people would sin against God, they would break the law. They were now guilty of breaking the law. And God, being a just God, knows that when someone breaks the law, justice is that they are punished. There's consequences for breaking the law. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken the law. We all deserve justice. And the way the Old Testament would work with God's relationship with his people is when you would sin, you would bring an animal sacrifice, a cow or a dove or something, and you would bring that animal sacrifice and it would be put on the altar. And the priest would come and would burn up that sacrifice. And basically, that sacrifice was supposed to be you. Like, you should have received the punishment from God, the justice of God, the wrath of God upon you for your sin. But in his mercy, God provided a way for that, there to be a substitute for that wrath, that justice to become on the animal, not on you. But in the Old Testament, the animal is just an animal. You'd come sacrifice it, and then you'd go sin again, and you'd bring another animal. You'd go sin again, you'd bring another animal for that sin, and that guilt again and again and again. And I think we eat a lot of cows today. I mean, imagine if you were sacrificing an animal every time you sin. Every time you messed up, you had to go back to the altar. But what's beautiful about the New Testament, what Jesus did, according to the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus being both fully man and fully God, fully man, and that he can be the one representative for all of humanity, because he's one of us. God became flesh, so that he could be the one representative for all of humanity, for all of the ages. And yet he's also fully God. Meaning that he's eternal, he's infinite. And so when he's sacrificed on the cross, which John calls him the Lamb of God in the Gospel of John, who takes away the sin of the world. So when he is sacrificed on the cross like the animal on the altar, that sacrifice is eternal. It is infinite. That sacrifice is universal. That one sacrifice, it frees everyone from all of their sins, for past, all of them before, and all to come for forever. We don't have to keep bringing sacrifices to the altar anymore. And that's that beautiful picture of this guide to us of who God is, this path of love, this God of love. is The God that came and is not judging you for your sin, he took upon himself the sin and his own wrath. That you might be freed 
and have life. Showing us in that one moment that he paid the ultimate price so you and I wouldn't have to. That's why Jesus is our guide to the path of love. It's why John tells us in verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. When you follow Jesus as guide, you follow someone whose central purpose and the key event of their life was them dying an excruciating death, taking your place on the cross, on the altar, to bear the burden of the punishment of all of our sins. You see the key word in Jesus, in your atonement for your sins, getting rid of your sins and the punishment of your sins is substitute. Whatever metaphor you use, there's some kind of substitution that happens. Where instead of you, it was Jesus taking on your punishment. And then Jesus gives you the life that he got. And he does this for you. We follow Jesus as the guide to the path of love. We also have a second guide. It's the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. It says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, to explain the Spirit of God in a few hundred words is impossible, okay? But what I I can say is this. The Spirit of God is the presence of God that empowers you to live life with God. The Spirit of God is the presence of God that empowers you to live life with God. Um, It reminded me of uh, our phones. Um, You see, for so long in history, we thought that knowledge was the problem. That people are morons and do stupid things that hurt those around them because they don't know enough. Like, if we could educate people, we could educate people into better behavior, okay? And I think phones, these things, have proven to us that that's wrong, (laughs) right? Because everybody walks around with a computer in their pocket, and we're no better because of it. We may be worse. It's like, dude, let me get a video. You go do that. Like, how many people, like, that was a really bad thing, the next thing it just happened, <laughs> right? Knowledge does not equal maturity. Just having, I mean, I was, I was out of town uh, this last week, and I was with a friend, and we were in a city I'd never been to before. We were like, hey, let's go get some breakfast. Where do we want to go? And I pulled it up, and I said, hey, there's this great, like, open up Yelp. I'm like, hey, there's this great restaurant with good reviews. I have so much knowledge at my fingertips, and yet what do I happen? What, what happens? I go there, I don't pull out my, my fitness app, do I? No, I get biscuits and gravy. Because that's what you do. You get biscuits. The knowledge doesn't bring about better life. It's the, it's the appropriate application of that knowledge, which is called wisdom. Like, these things can tell us cocaine is bad, but that doesn't stop me from using it. Like, that's common knowledge, and yet... But even though this is with us all the time, in the pocket, in our pocket, we take it wherever we go, we can get as much knowledge as we want whenever we want. See, that's kind of like the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit goes a step further. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon one person for an event, for, for a task, or, or maybe a one person for their lifetime, or just, or that, and that's a special person because they're the prophet. But, but Prophet Elijah gets the Spirit, but his neighbor Joe doesn't, okay? That's in the Old Testament. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, every single one of us gets the indwelling of the Spirit who doesn't just give us knowledge, but empowers us and helps us overcome those urges, those sinful desires, and helps us overcome the sin that so entangles and messes us up. The Holy Spirit's the thing that's transforming us. It's the person that walks alongside us and guides us and directs us into the path of life. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom. The Holy Spirit guides us into knowledge. 
And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that created this world because of Jesus, can live in every single one of you. Can be your walking companion through this life, the wisdom that you need day in and day out. And that's how God transforms individuals. It's how he guides us from the path of falsehood to the path of truth. From the spirits of the age to the spirit of love. Now how can we know that we, tr- that we can trust these two guides? How do we know that they're trustworthy? See, the two paths are clarified by the two guides. And, and we know that we can trust these two guides, I think, for these two reasons. Here's verse 19. It says this. We love because God first loved us. It's the first reason. I think we can trust these two guides. It's because God displays himself. He makes himself known to us in his most fullest way by him loving us on the cross. You know that old saying, people don't know how much, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Isn't that true? Even if the words you're speaking are absolutely true and you have knowledge out the wazoo and um, you're speaking truth to people, if you don't genuinely care about me, you don't show me that you love me, that you're looking out for my best interest. I'm not listening to you. It's the, word, it's the word trust. When I trust you, then I'll follow you. How do you develop trust with someone? Ted Bolsinger in his book, Canoeing the Mountains, said it this way, that trust is gained like a thermostat and lost like a light switch. Trust is gained over time but lots, by lots of little deposits, one after another after another. It's, imagine for me like you're filling a bathtub with this communion cup, right? Think about, you know, not enough juice on Sunday mornings. That's not, I mean, think of how long that would take. Fill that thing up, pour it in the bathtub. Just again and again and again. That's how trust is developed. Over time, little deposits again and again, of you doing what you said you would do, of you showing that you love and you care about this person over and over and over again. You trust that person more and more and more. You know how trust is lost? Pulling the plug on that bathtub. One betrayal, one statement, one BLC, what we call bad life choices. Like one of those things, the trust that you built up for hours can empty that tub in seconds. And so how do you know that you can trust somebody? Bolsinger uses these three words. He talks about congruence, constancy, constancy, and care. Congruence is this, that what you say you're going to do, you do. There's zero cap between what you say you're going to do and what you do. Constancy is that you're the same person in all the circumstances today. And, and, and in that environment, you're the same person at home as you are with your kids, with your spouse, with your, with your friends, with your coworkers, with the pastor. Like the word integrity comes from the idea of integrated. You're an integrated person. You're whole everywhere you go. You're the same person. You're not compartmentalized into these different personalities and the way that you posture yourself and that you talk and that you care uh, about others. Constancy is that idea of just being the same person. And then comes care. Well, let me go back to constancy. I meant to say this, that if you continue to shift your personality, how you act and how you interact with people, that makes you untrustworthy. I'll never forget this guy that I knew growing up. And my dad always said he was a little different. Like he said, that's, that's not the real him. He's just putting on a show. And then we, uh, we were able to just me and my dad and him hang out one time. He was a completely different person. I liked that person. And that made me not trust him. So I'm like, I, I don't know who I'm getting. 
Then comes this idea of care. I trust you when I see that your effect, uh, your actions show me that you care about my well-being, even if it hurts you, even if it's sacrifice. That's the idea of this sacrifice is love. Even if it hurts me or it, it's hard for me or it makes my life worse, but I'm doing it because I want to make your life better. That is, man, that's real love. That's sacrificial love. That's what the love we see on the cross. Now, put those three words back. Oh, you still have them. Good. Constancy, congruence, and care. I wouldn't ask you to trust a God that isn't congruent, that isn't constant, and that isn't caring. That wouldn't just be foolish or inconsiderate. That would be evil. It'd be evil. You see, God has shown himself to me through his guides, the Son, Jesus, and his Spirit, to be those things, to be congruent and constant and caring. Has he for you? Has he? If you're not a Christian here today, you're not a believer in this room, I don't think there's any way for you to say yes to the answer of that question unless you do this one thing, unless you try to follow Jesus. Like, I don't think you can just say, yeah, that's true, when you don't actually know who Jesus is and have learned about him and entered into a relationship with him. You can't just say, yeah, I, I trust that person. I've never really talked to them. I don't really know them. I've not seen them do those three things. I've not really had any interaction with them. You may know from some of their other people that, that are close to them that you trust. But man, you, you just got to come check it out. Come. Hang out with us. Read the Bible. Like, let's study the Bible together. Hear what God is saying to you. Put it into practice and see what happens to your life. Come try and follow Jesus and see if he doesn't reveal himself to you as congruent and constant and caring. Because get this, he first loved you. He, he first made the first move towards you. God himself and the person of Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for you. Not only does that act show congruence, constancy, and care, but here's the second reason why I think God's trustworthy, these two guys. He sends his followers out into the world to love you and care for you, to be his representatives of his love to you. Look at the second reason to trust these guys in verse 20 and 21. It says this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, one of God's filters that sifts out those who are on the path of truth versus the path of falsehood is that those on the path of truth love people well. And friends, as a universal church, we have not been the best at loving people well all of the time, have we? There are a number of scars that mar the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. The Crusades, killing Jews and Muslims in Jesus' name. The Inquisition, slavery, colonialism, how we treat foreigners and strangers, how we have picketed people saying God hates fags. There are instances in, history of the, in the history of the church where we have to look ourselves in the face and acknowledge that our world has chosen the spirit of the age instead of the guides to the path of love because we have not loved the world very well. Church, we need to, we need to do better at that because our God is, is a God of love. If we claim him and we're his representatives, we need to represent him as the God of love. On the other hand, I truly believe that the scars of the church fail in comparison to the highlights of the love of God's people throughout the last 2,000 years. 
I mean, through the first 300 years of the history of the church, the church displayed the love of God by Christians picking up babies, mostly girls, who were left on the streets to die because they were not boys. And they were brought into their homes and loved them as their own. When Rome was hit by nasty plagues that were killing people by the thousands, it was the Christians who stayed behind, caring for strangers who had been abandoned by their families, dying with them, catching the illness and dying with them. Roman governors are recorded in history as saying, not only do they care for their sick, but they cared for our sick as well. There's no concept of, of, of children having this dignity and, and, and loving them and caring for them until Christians came along. They were commodities. They were mouths to feed, most likely going to die until they made it past a certain age. It was the Christians who elevated the roles of women in society first, not treating them as property, but as co-heirs with Christ, leading house churches and serving as prophetesses and deaconesses, calling not just women to submit to their husbands, but husbands to also, in Ephesians 5.21, to submit to their wives and love their wives. It was Christians who built the first hospitals, Christians who built the first orphanages, Christians who built the first schools for the lower castes of society. It was Christians who eradicated slavery in England and America, Christians who led the civil rights movement in America, Christians who reconciled a torn apart South Africa after the evils of apartheid, teaching everyone, ready for this, to love their enemies. A concept that's not found in any shred of literature until Jesus spoke those words in 33 AD. Here's the reality. The God of love guides us into the life of love. When we follow him, when we obey what he tells us to do, how he guides us and directs us for our lives. That's why John concludes this section with these words in 1 John 5 verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. I don't know about you, but I hate people telling me what to do. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? Yes. I want to do what I want to do because I want to do it, right? And that should be the whole story. But doing what I want to do has led me more often than not into the spirit of the age, into wearing crocs, into bad decisions that have actually hurt myself and others around me. My bad life choices, my BLCs, have led me onto the path of falsehood, the path of hate, the path of selfishness, not the path of love and sacrifice and truth. Can I get a witness? So that's why God gives us commands to guide us onto the right path of love. Here's what I came to tell you today. Here it is. The life of love is guided by the God of love. And until you see God as the God of love, you're not going to trust that he's guiding you in the right place. His commands will always feel burdensome, always feel restrictive, always feel narrow. But when you see and acknowledge God as the God of love, that he's guiding you into the life of love, that he's the God of, of love and grace and redemption, that he's caring and he's congruent and he's constant and trustworthy, his commands will feel light and easy. And it'll be him saying, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why we're going to end today and why we take communion on a regular basis. We see this model in scripture week after week, and so that's what we do. And, and we have stations around the room, the bread and the cup. And I, I think this is one of those really cool reasons as to why 
is what communion does. It helps us remember that God is love first. Like communion is the body of Jesus broken for you, beaten for you, God. The cup, the blood of Jesus, God bleeding for you, paying for your sins, the substitute that you might have life with him. It's him showing you again, again, again. I pursued you first. I love you first. I want to get, I want to rescue you from what, from the sin that, and the hell on earth that you're living in today, from death, from hate. Because he is a God of love. And so in a second, we're going to have, if, if everyone come to one of these stations in the room and you can take the bread and eat it and, and the cup and drink and remember God is the God of love. And if you have limited mobility, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come and they will serve you communion. But we need to see that God is love first so that we can then live out this ethic that he shows us that the life of following Jesus is a life of self-sacrifice. Because when we see God clearly, we can trust him deeply and we can follow him confidently. The life of love is guided by the God of love. So whenever you feel that, during this moment, come take communion around one of these stations. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. And he gave it to you. He said, eat, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's remember.